Good morning, brothers and sisters. Thanks for joining us online. I want to remind you what I said last week. I want to remind you of the importance of the gathered church. What does the word church mean? It means the gathering. Those called out, gathered together as the people of God. I just want to encourage you to do that. COVID is, has changed, uh, hopefully just in the short term, the way people have engaged with the church. And, and, and bad habits can set in and people can disengage. And I want to tell you, faithful disciples of Jesus Christ are part of his body and are connected. And I really, really want to encourage you uh, to be gathering with us. So come back as you're able. Again, I'm not trying to put a pressure on you that in any way pushes against the caution and concern you've been practicing in regard to COVID or immunity issues. Absolutely. Uh, you have Christian liberty in that regard. But if your distancing is not for health reasons, but is, but is kind of lacking that commitment to be back in the church with the people of God, let me, as one of your pastors, exhort you uh, as an under-shepherd of Christ to return to his body and gather and worship with us. Uh, we, we miss you, those that we haven't been able to see, and we long for your return. Uh, we're in, our, in this First Timothy series entitled Entrusted to You, where Paul writes to Pastor Tim and gives him these kind of words of instruction and exhortation, uh, helping this church that Pastor Tim oversees to navigate ministering the gospel in its context and among its members of the fold. And we are in the section that is difficult. As I've said the last two weeks, and this will be our last uh, third and final week on this particular text, we are in not only one of the most difficult texts, but also one of the most debated. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, which deals with an issue that is like this uh, scratching on a chalkboard with our fingernails. It just doesn't sit in our culture and in our day and age. And yet we want to sit under, not over God's word. We want to listen to what it says and submit ourselves to the king, King Jesus. So we started uh, two weeks ago in this same text, and I just gave you a 30,000-foot flyover of the purpose of God's design for, for men and women, male and female, that plurality of humanity. Then last week, we went through the details of this text. Like I took you through to show you the kind of principles or core teachings that the text makes, but there's, there's lots of questions that are left. Like how does, this, how does this work? How does this manifest itself in the church? What is this saying or even not saying? So today, we're going to talk about the practices, really how to apply this text to our local church, and ultimately to our lives. So let me pray. We'll jump in together. Father, help us to hear your word. We've been dealing with a, a difficult and debated text, Father, yet we deal with it because we want to be people who sit under your word. So help us to submit ourselves to you and to your word and to the practices and the principles that you've established. Help us to see the purpose for which you've made us, male and female. Thank you for the gospel that transforms our lives and that your word which feeds us and aligns us like a plumb line to what is true and real and most important. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters, especially those who have not been able to, other than this means and some other connections in the body, have not been able to gather back that they would feel comfort in due course uh, to be able to gather back with us as the body of Christ. And Father, help us to hear your word now. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to, after two weeks of going through this text, kind of just give you a brief review 
of the previous two messages we had, really just kind of the, the highlights and the main points. The first is this. I wanted to give you the, the big picture that God has a beautiful and purposeful design of male and female. Like there, there is, it is beautiful and it is purposeful. It is, it is harmonious, it is interdependent. There is a relational beauty and interdependence. That is absolutely what God designed. That male needs female and female needs male. And the whole world functions in that harmonious cooperation and mutuality. But then there's the divorce. That beautiful design was plagued by divorce. And clearly that divorce, as we all understand as Christians, was initiated by a separation between creator and creation. Like humanity was separated from their maker. And the design was, was, was deceived and distorted and, and law, losing its light to see what it was. But even more than just that vertical divorce, there was a horizontal divorce between male and female where there's fight for power and control and rights and abuses and pain and suffering. That's a biblical story that we get just in the first three chapters of the Word of God. So that's the dilemma we now face. You and I, even as committed disciples of Jesus, are disconnected, at least in our natural fleshly desires or in the way that the world has been functioning. We're disconnected from God's plan and God's will. In response, when we want to wrestle with, okay, how do we, how do we think about male and female? I said to you in that first week that there's two major positions, two camps in, that, that, that Christians in our greater tradition hold fast to. One is called egalitarianism, and the other is called complementarianism. Egalitarianism, a, a, a single word that defines it would be they, they fight for rights. The egalitarianism would say that there's no distinction. There should never be any kind of distinction at all between the purposes and the function of a man or a woman. No distinction. Complementarianism, if one word that summarizes that would be roles, that there's a complementary nature. There, there's a, there, it works well together, but, but a lot of times what complementarianism does is it draws up hard and fast and rigid roles. Both of those views, even though our church would technically fit under the complementarian camp, and we do, but, but both of those have potential weaknesses. The egalitarianism position can in many ways have to re-explain or, or, or qualify heavily what God's word seems to make explicit. The fight over rights fits more in our culture outside the church than the attitude and the posture of our church. Jesus Christ did not fight for his rights. He, he gave up his rights in service and humility for a greater good. A similar danger, an unnatural move can happen with complementarianism, where, where especially in our tradition, we, we don't even realize how the cultural ethos of our day and that same battle for power and control can mask itself in some kind of complementarian mode where really it's just power and abuse, subjugation. It's not serving. It's seeking self-gain. Self those, those battle for roles and sometimes the depictions of what is a true man or what is a woman, but specifically in regard to what a man can be, as we spoke about over the last couple weeks, can borrow more from John Wayne than from Jesus. 
That's why, as much as it's not necessarily an official position, but fitting under a complementarian category, I think that the word that the Bible would kind of, you would just see bubbling up from Scripture, just kind of instinctive to its ethos and its message and the posture that the Bible uh, posits regarding the relationship between man and woman would be mutuality. And the verse that is missed is Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence or fear of Christ. We always start that marriage relational dynamic, male and female, in Ephesians 5. We always start in verse 22, and that break there, that dangerous break put in the Bible maybe no more than a century ago, damages the mutuality that exists. And rather than thinking of rights or thinking of roles, I think that when we think of what it means to be male and female, we should think of responsibilities and rewards. That a, that, that a man, rather than thinking of his role and his John Wayne ethos, should be thinking of his responsibility to serve as Christ served. And the rewards, the blessing, the gift of lining ourselves with God's design and fulfilling the purpose for which we were made, created to exist. That's how we should think. So rather than seeing in the church or even in the home these battles for power, subjugation, let alone abuse and harm, we should see sacrifice, self-denying servants, men loving their wives, their daughters, the sisters in Christ, women loving and honoring their husbands and their brothers in Christ. That's what the Bible portrays. So then when we come to this text, it's, it's quite difficult. We're, we're jumping in with these categories, not only in our own tradition, but just from culture, and especially the, the, the foreign language and statement made in verse 12. We argued over the last two weeks that the text, this text is not to be interpreted, can be, can't be explained away by a cultural issue that no longer fits our culture. It can't even fully be explained by a situational issue that, that, that is different than our day. We argue that this text is foundational, and that argument is rooted in the fact that the text points to the order and structure of creation. Like, it's how God made the world. It's not how the world morphed or an issue in a particular city or church. It's how God designed creation. And the principles that we were given last week were this, that God design, God's design for male and female reflects the ministry of Jesus to all people. Let the women learn that the mutuality and collective nature of the church of God reflecting the full ministry with and to male and female. At the same time, God's design reflects the authority of Jesus over all people, that there is a structure and an order. That this structure and order is rooted in the order and structure of creation, but that ultimately, and this is especially verse 15, that God's word and Christianity exalts women and their significance in the purposes of God. I want to end our kind of focus on these verses, these three weeks that we spent together. I want to end by telling you what 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15 is not saying, and then I want to tell you what it is. They're kind of fleshing it out kind of applicational discussions. I want to start with talking about what it is not saying. It's in your notes. If you're watching online and you downloaded those via the app or on the website, you can see those. But I'm going to 
I'm going to share those with you now. First, what, 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 what is this text not saying? It is not speaking in a misogynistic way or thinking from the perspective of the modern self. And maybe both of those words sound a little heady, but they're important. It's not speaking in a misogynistic way. Literally, the word misogyny means hate of women, but probably is used more generally in the sense of prejudice or bias. This text in no way hates women. It is far from being biased or prejudiced. It is rooted in the beautiful, loving design of a creator, of his creation. It is a misread to suggest that this text thinks women thinks that women have less value, that God prefers them less, or that their performance is lacking from men. It's just not the case. The Bible says the opposite a hundred times. But it is also important to note that this text is not thinking from the perspective of the modern self. There's that, that language I'm borrowing from that recent book by Carl Truman, The Modern Self. Our modern-day focus on an individualistic identity, as if we're just kind of free-floating, self-authoritative creatures, even distinct from creation. That kind of modern view of the self offers a counter-authority, and a totally different story, really, to God's design and purpose. The autonomous modern self has become so dominant that not only do any institution or any authority have no say over me, but even my, this is an extreme example, but even my own body, the physical structure of my body no longer has a say over who I am. Our physical body and our social bodies have been divorced from an authoritative say in me. This text isn't thinking like that. This text is telling you the true story of the modern world. God loves male and female. He made male and female. You cannot claim some kind of modern self-perspective is appropriate to Scripture or some kind of misogynistic pattern is relevant in the text. Quite the opposite. Christianity revolutionized, revolutionized a care and concern and a role for women in the secular pagan world in which it entered. And it still does. It still revolutionizes that. It still gives the purpose and talks about the beautiful, harmonious covenant of marriage in which a man and a woman is supposed to enter into and the harmonious codependence and interdependence that exists in that design that God made. And the fruit of that is in our healthy Christian marriages and our families. Here's another thing the text is not saying. It's not addressing the roles of women outside the church, meaning this text isn't giving kind of a, a full summary of the, of the roles, if we want to use that dangerous language at times, of the roles of women in the home or in the society. It's talking about the church. Scripture elsewhere makes this clear. It talks about these things in other places, but this text is talking about corporate worship and the function of the church. I remember we, we, were, with, we, we were with friends once, my wife and I, this was many years ago, and literally I heard uh, uh, another woman, another wife say in regard to voting, she said, you know, I just wish, 
I don't even know why they let women vote. This, 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 this comment was made less than 20 years ago. Laura and I heard this. I don't even know why they let women vote. Like, I just wish my husband could vote for me. And I just felt like saying, are you crazy? God designed you in the full image of God, male and female. Of course you should be voting. You are a full person. You're not just under some realm of another. You are your own person, fully in existence. So we need to be careful with these texts that we don't do that dangerous role game where we slice and dice in such a way that we dehumanize or, or delimit what it means to be a woman. Now, I'm not denying that Scripture uses headship language in regard to the role between men and women. It does. But even there, and this is important, Ephesians 5.21, even there, in the whole text of Ephesians 5, Christ is the example of the headship. And what does his headship look like? Does it look like power? Does it look like selfish gain? He is the one who suffers. He is the one who denies himself his rights. He is the one who takes up our role, our burden. Which wife wouldn't be blessed by a husband who literally exemplifies the life of Christ? Which woman would find that, that his headship is anything but sacrifice and service? And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that the brothers at Hope Evangelical Free Church hear of this the kind of distinction between male and female and yet feel a burden that it wasn't the, the wife or the woman who was asked to exemplify the, the, the ultimate sacrificial nature like Christ. It was the man. Yet it's important to note that this text is not speaking about those things. That would be for another sermon in another text. This text is addressing the roles of women in the church, not outside it. A third thing this text is not saying, it is not limiting women in any role or service in the church except for one, the office of pastor elder. That's it. That's the only one. And again, that, that 1% versus 99% is, is oddly the point of debate. 99% is the same. No difference. Yet this seems to be the center of the dispute. And I, even, I just kind of want to ask you, will you allow God to be God? Will you allow God to designate where you serve and how you serve? You have to do this with your physical body. You don't get to uh, tell God if you don't want to deal with certain calamities that affect your finances with calamities that affect your nation, with calamities that affect your physical bodily health, with calamities that affect your family and your children. You don't get to say no to that. Those, those are God's will, God's plans that he uses for not only his own glory, but also ultimately our good. So also his design from creation itself, and therefore in the body of Christ, is according to his will. As I've said last week, I'll say again, maybe an analogy will help. Just as God assigns women a unique role in the human family, a role that a, that a man cannot do, they, they, they can't cook uh, and, 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 and bear the children. That's a role, a unique role assigned to the women. So in the spiritual family, God assigns a unique role to the man. So please hear that. Please, please note what it's not saying. Last, what is the text saying? 
What are some things we can flesh out that this text is saying? First is this. This text commands the church to allow women to be full recipients and participants in the church. And to be honest with you, the church has not done well. The church, capital C, uppercase, has not done well of that over the centuries. Ancient culture is the opposite of modern culture. And the early church had the opposite issue. The early church was facing a culture that had relegated women to property, to nothing. This passage would have struck a chord, offensive in the opposite direction that it is today. Women had full, to be full recipients, full participation in the church? Yes. Because the church should reflect the plurality of humanity, God's beautiful design for male and female. We must be a church, and now I speak about Hope Church. We must be a church that inspires women to be faithful and fruitful disciples of Jesus. Have we done that? I think this text would ask us that hard question. They wouldn't just be asking that question to the women. It would be asking that question to the men, but also the pastor and elders. Have we inspired our sisters in Christ to be faithful and fruitful disciples of Jesus. Remember, 99% of the church life and ministry should reflect male and female. And to be honest and frank with you, in conversation even tonight, I'm recording this in the middle of the week, and tonight we have an elder meeting. And we'll talk about this very thing of applying this text to our own leadership role in the church. We can do better as a church to reflect the fact that 99%, again, the only one, that 1% is the office of pastor elder, but 99% of the ministry of this church should be equally reflecting male and female. I don't think we're doing well enough. We've already made some changes to try to reflect that. Even having Debbie Moore come on in director of women's ministry and, and, and some of the work that Katie Rudy has been doing trying to help us think about congregational care in a way that, that, that has just more nuance and, 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 and concern for things that I think were easily missed in the past. Like that's us trying to cover that 99% that reflects the plurality of humanity. Here, here's the second thing I think this text is saying. It, it commands the church to make gender a qualification for the office of pastor, elder, and his duties. Here's that 1%. And to be honest with you, this thing it is saying is probably the only one that's offensive or counterculture. Since the text is not cultural or situational, we are reading it as foundational, and therefore we read it as the will of God. Now, some churches separate office from function, meaning that they would only have a pastor-elder board of men based upon this text, but at the functional level, they would kind of have no limitations whatsoever. So kind of, kind of on the, the picture of pastor elders fits this, but the practice doesn't fit this text. But even this text won't allow you to do that because it doesn't just talk about the oversight and the authority. There's the office. But it also talks about a particular practice, a duty, teaching. Now, some also limit the word teaching to simply preaching. But even here, a, the Greek word for preaching was not used. The more general term for teaching. 
what seems to be the case is this. This text is arguing that not only corporate worship, but any authoritative church teaching is in view. That seems to be what's described. And this isn't talking about small groups, group discussions, personal conversations. It's not even talking about all the ways that we might be trying to apply and develop and think about Scripture and God's Word. It isn't talking about any other aspect regarding the corporate worship service outside of preaching. It's not talking about reading of Scripture and prophesying, which is, again, testimonying to God's particular Word, not, not future-telling. Numerous aspects are all in play. But it is simply saying that the authoritative teaching and the spiritual oversight of the church, that 1% of its tasks and duties are reserved for qualified men. That's it. As we'll see in chapter 3, this is not a service for all men, but only qualified. As of right now, with hundreds of men and hundreds of women at this church, only 12 are in that role. That is, 12 people out of hundreds are only those that serve in this office. In that sense, it's less than even 1%. We gave the reasons before. That has nothing to do with value or preference or performance. It, there's a gospel reason. It reflects the ministry of the man Christ. A practical reason that God had to select a person, appoint someone for this. And even the big picture reason, that even if it's hard for us to see, and to be honest, even for us to fully accept, we know that in all things, God works for the good, for his own glory, and for our good. Here's the third thing this text does teach us. It reminds us that the church, it reminds the church that what God called very good at creation, like what he said in Genesis, has permanence and authority. Genesis 1 through 3, and we talked about this when we did the Creation Matters sermon series now several years ago. When, when, when most people look at Genesis uh, 1 and 2 specifically, they think it's answering the how question. But in that series, I tried to say that Genesis 1 to 2, as much as it bumps into the how, that's actually not the question it's most excited to answer. Rather, the, the questions it's answering is not just how, but, but who, God. What? What did he make? And why? Purpose, design. This text commands us to see, specifically in verse 13, that our created form and functions are permanent, even after sin, and therefore are authoritative. Our bodies carry an authority. God made us male and female. Our marriages are connected to this authority. That what God brought together, let no person separate. And so also should the way we exist as male and female in the church. Fourth thing this text is saying, it warns men and women not to break the created order, and especially for spiritual reasons. Genesis 1-3 to teaches us that the problem from the beginning of creation was actually creature rebellion. Creaturely rebellion was what separated not only us from our Creator, but also us from one another. Even more, verse 14 alludes to the fact that Satan's first and arguably best strategy was to divide and conquer. If he could get men and women to go against God, if he could separate them from God and be in conflict with God, and if he could get men and women to separate from one another, 
he could win more. Divide men from women. Divide bodies from functions. Divide marriage from its purpose. And ultimately divide creatures from their creator. And when the created order is broken, spiritual ruin happens. That's actually what the end of verse 14, I believe the Apostle Paul to Timothy is actually saying to both men and women in the church. So let me just ask you this, stemming from this text. Are you, brothers and sisters, are you willing to submit your created form and function to the design of God? Are you willing to, create, to, to submit yourself to the created purpose for which God made you? Are you willing? Before we spend too much time debating what it is, we better be willing to ask if we're willing to submit to it. Last thing, and this is maybe a surprise, especially in a text like this that usually just gets so clouded and baggaged with debate and anger that we miss ultimately the, the, the trajectory where verse 15 takes us. This text elevates the purposeful design of women and exhorts them to discover the joy and fruitfulness that awaits them. This is usually not the application from this text, but it's a big one. God does not simply want women to be learners about God. He wants his daughters to live to the full for God. The strangeness of verse 15 is simply say, we looked at the, the details, but if I were to summarize the exhortation of verse 15, it would be this. A Christian woman should strive not to deny her createdness, but to embrace it. A Christian woman should see herself as God designed her and understand the temptation for power and influence and seek to align herself to Christ who is not only her savior, but her satisfaction. The fullness of life is not found in being yourself. Oh, that is such a, a falsehood of the story that our, our, our broken world will try to say. The fullness of life is not found in being yourself, as culture would tell you, but in being God's. That the fullness of life is found in Aligning yourself and finding satisfaction in God's design and purpose for you. And God's word in this text speaks to that and invites us to follow. Only in Christ, sisters, only in Christ will you discover true joy and real fruitfulness. I've said three or two times, and I'll make this a third as I end each of these weeks' message in this text. Never forget what I think is a core biblical truth taught through this text. God made you man and woman. Not only did he do that for his glory, but he also did it for our mutual good. And even when that's hard for us to see, even when it's difficult for us to grasp, even when we, because of our separation from creator, we as creatures, even when we hear these texts and, and feel that offense in us, we need to be careful that we're trusting what is the true authority, our own innate fallible feelings or the word of God and his purposeful design as revealed in Scripture. Now, some texts speak to the brokenhearted so beautifully. Some texts speak to the hard-hearted. And, and in many ways, this text pushes on us 
and the discipling we've received from our own sinful flesh and from a broken world. Let us find true joy as male and female, true fruitfulness as disciples of Jesus Christ, sons and daughters of the King. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word which ministers to us week in and week out. Thank you for this text which teaches us and reminds us and instructs us about the beautiful design you made for your creatures, male and female. Thank you for the plurality of humanity. I pray that our church walks away from this being emboldened to fulfill the purpose for which they were made by God, to submit to your word. And church, Father, may our church reflect that. May we reflect that order and structure, but also the plurality in every corner of our ministries. And I pray that you would help us do that. Help us to see where it's not happening and to remedy it immediately so that our church can reflect the joy and the fruitfulness of a people of God made male and female as an embassy of the kingdom and a foretaste of the kingdom to come. Father, be with us in this difficult COVID season. I pray for my brothers and sisters who have not been able to join us, that that their hearts would break for their brothers and sisters, that they would crave the gathering of the church for which they were redeemed by Christ and called to by his body. Thank you for their sacred lives. Care for them, I pray, as they are at a distance from us, and bring them back to us soon, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.